So what is it that, that rattles you, that, that unsettles you when you encounter it from a lively, like wholehearted commitment, faith commitment to Jesus? What was it this week that, that did that? In our, our current section of Luke, we're from Luke 8, 4 through 9, 17, but 8, 4 through verse 21 Jesus presses us with the crucial need to respond personally to him, not just be aware of him, but to like engage him personally in faith. But then, given that there's all kinds of obstacles to real faith, all kinds of challenges in this, this fallen world, and that Jesus is very mindful of those and how tough it can be, from 8.22 to 8.56, uh, Luke stresses Jesus' authority. He stresses his authority over four of our primary hindrances and threats and enemies, those things that, that unsettle us. And so Luke anticipates our inner questioning, that question that goes something like this, I want to believe in Jesus right here. I want to. But is he enough right here? Can, can I really trust him in this upsetting and hurtful and fearful situation? And so the four challenges to our faith occur one after the other. It's a sequence. And so normally Luke groups things logically, and it's logical here too, but it's also chronological, like one after the other. He strings these events together, arranges them together as if to say, okay, disciples, I've told you to respond to me in faith. I know what you're gonna say. Let me set them up and I'm gonna knock them down one after the other and show you I'm good for it. And he does that for us too. And so this is a purposeful teaching time. It's like Rusty said this morning, that most important question we can ask is what is God's purpose with this? And we have that here. It's a purposeful teaching plan to, to illustrate what he's going to say in the book of Acts. And in Acts, Luke's second volume, you have to read them together, he's going to say this to us, we who want to be committed to Jesus, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must. It's, a, it's not just inevitable, but it's a necessity, we're going to pass through these things, and so Jesus is gonna show us that he's enough for them, and he's gonna use them. So two weeks ago, we meditated on the first challenge that threatens our faith, and that challenge was the storms of life. It's those times when the winds rage against us, and the, and the, and the waves pound over us, and we think we're about to capsize and drown. We're, we're frantic, we're bewildered, uh, we're at our wit's end, we're overwhelmed, and we look at that little boat in that storm, and we say, it's, more, it's safer for the disciples to be with Jesus in the storm than had they stayed on the seashore and never entered. Um, it's safer to be in the boat with Jesus in the midst of storms, and when in that storm it appears that Jesus is absent. 
Jesus both leads us into the storm, it's his idea, he stills the storm in some way he's going to, and he also uses the storm, he will always use it for good. And so today we look at the second challenge, and this second challenge to genuine faith, and in this one, uh, Jesus takes his disciples across the lake to face our, our chief adversary, the devil and his armies. And so let's read Luke, uh, beginning at verse, let's see, beginning at verse 26 of chapter 8. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what have, I to, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man for whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Incredible story. The grass withers and the flowers fade. This good word endures forever. It's written with you in mind too. And so if you've ever been in a situation where you just knew there was this additional party of evil, this maybe visceral sense that you were in the presence of evil. And sometimes it happens in a conversation. You just know something else is going on. And the veil gets pulled back. You, you, you notice 
or become more aware than you usually are that there is a spiritual warfare always going on. We're always embroiled in it. We're never, we're never extricated from it. We're always in it. And one of the times it really happened for me was when I was in Peru. I told this story back in 2010. And um, the uncle of a new believer had died and we were discipling this new believer. Lived way up in the mountains and I joined my evangelist friend Juan and we went to the funeral. We arrived, we encountered this very heavy gloom. Like 70 or 80 people just sitting on a dirt road, just waiting, no one saying anything. And, the sky was even dark, and everybody just waited, not speaking, and finally I asked my evangelist friend, like, why are we waiting? We have the casket, you and I can lead the service, let's, let's go, and he says, well, we're waiting for, for the chanters. So I didn't know what he meant, but pretty soon I heard something down the way, and these three men were walking towards us up the dirt road, and they were chanting. And they could hardly walk a straight line. It was a kind of a zigzag line. Soon I realized they, they were drinking moonshine, the local moonshine, chewing cocaine leaves. And they would mix it with calcium to, to really get it going. And so when they arrived, everyone stood up like in unison. Nobody said anything, just stood up. And the chanters led the way, the casket followed, and we all followed after that. And we walked up this dirt road and they led chants all along the way. They were Roman Catholic lay leaders, but they had mixed Roman Catholicism with this folk indigenous animistic beliefs. And so they led these chants to Mary, like if we pray a thousand prayers, would you release this soul from purgatory? And the people joined in, just really somber, dark. And we finally made it to the cemetery, but they didn't call it the cemetery, they called it the Pantheon because it was the realm of ancestral spirits. And when we entered the Pantheon, they, we had to recite the Apostles' Creed, and yet not only that, but we had to take a shot of moonshine to ward off the ancestral spirits, and, or some of us did. And then we made our way to the grave, and the chanters continued praying to Mary these prayers that the soul would get out of purgatory. It's just gloom, depressing, all about what we can do to somehow survive. And the sky was even dark and threatening, and so, my new Christian friend who were trying to disciple this nephew, he went up to the chanters and showed a lot of boldness. He said, you know, can these pastors also have a part in the service? And he got rebuffed. So he waited a little while and he asked again and they refused. He waited a little while, he asked again and finally they relented and my friend Juan, my evangelist friend, he got up and he gave this clear, simple gospel message of the cross of Christ and a redeemer for sinners, and then he paid the price for sin, and in that way broke the power of the evil one and rose again from the dead, as simple as that, and the whole mood of the people shifted. The gloom turned to hope, and even the clouds parted, and the sunlight shone on my evangelist friend. And I sense more than ever, maybe, that whether the chanters realized it or not, the devil was using them to keep these people hopeless and fearful and to blind them to the good news, which is his chief aim always. And sometimes we realize it more than others. However, 1 John 3, 8 says that Jesus came to undo the works of the evil one. All of them. And we see that played out in a dramatic way 
in our passage today, right when Jesus arrives to land, right on the shore, no sooner does he touch land than this demon-possessed man runs out to meet him. And it's as if he's waiting on him. And it's like one commentator says, I really love, it's like it gives the impression that Jesus has an appointment with him. And so one of the reasons Jesus takes his disciples across the lake is because he has an appointment to rescue this man from the devil. And we should add, he also has an appointment to teach his disciples he's more than enough for the devil and all his armies. Well, we're going to look at the desperate condition, the decisive conquest, and then we're going to look at the different commitments. So the desperate condition. Just notice, the demons have taken this man captive, and and they've cast him from the city, they've reduced him to walking naked, they've driven him from home, they've caused him to live among tombs. He's in isolation, he's without covenant responsibility. He's immersed in shame. He's sunk in madness. And it's this slow, dreary death. That's what they're doing to him. It's not just one demon, but it's, it's demons. The demon even identifies himself as legion. And a Roman legion, this is a Roman military term, it was a force of five to 6,000 soldiers. I mean, this is an army, an army. You get the idea, it's an orchestrated army of demons inhabiting, occupying, this man dominating, controlling, subjugating this man like a a military force would do, like Rome was presently doing over Israel. And what this occupying force wants to do is what they end up doing to the herd of pigs in hurtling them off a cliff and destroying them in the water. They want to use him and discard him. And so he has these episodes when they seize him and they exert this violent strength in him and on those around him. He breaks bonds and chains. He goes from relative calm when the townspeople can put chains and shackles on him because he's a threat and a nuisance. But then the the demons agitate him again and he breaks his bonds and he flees into barren places. The devil wants him in the desert alone. And... Mark adds in his version these painful details that he's crying out day and night and he's cutting himself with stones, just self-inflicted pain. And so some even suggest that the name Legion also indicates that he suffered some traumatic experience from the Roman legions, maybe when he was a child. And this kind of opened the door for this Satan-influenced insanity in him. So he lives this nightmare, day and night, alone in fear and misery and helplessness. The the consciousness of loss and moments of sanity, you imagine, must be terrible. Like what he's lost. So this is something you'd see in a horror movie. You've probably seen a horror movie that would have something like this. And is it just this bizarre scene that, that doesn't happen today? And really the point is to show us 
that this same enemy is aligned against you. And it may look different, but it's just as forceful, just as orchestrated with the same goal in mind directed towards you. And so we see this in a host of ways, really. Um, The devil is the liar and the murderer. Um, Even the last couple of weeks in Tupelo, Memphis, bizarre, tragic, strange things. It just makes you wonder what's what's going on even in those events. Ephesians 6 speaks about the devil's schemes and it's a word for strategy. Like it's thoughtful, very learned, years of experience knowing how to get at people to keep them from Jesus. And so we can think of how he uses past wounds and and traumas to provoke emotional upheavals, mixed up thinking, depressive thoughts, mood swings, isolation, shame, mental illness, ways that he may be involved in those. And sometimes we don't consider his effect in these difficult things we go through. But this one particularly focuses there. What's his role in those difficult, emotional, mental situations we can find ourselves in? Or what about your physical desires that God has given as good gifts? Food and drink and sex and leisure and other pleasures, but they get out of whack, overpowering. And the question is, why is that? Well, we can say it's my sin nature, true, But also, as as Ed Welch says, behind all of those idolatries is a lurking, unseen, personal force that the devil, he aims to use good things to enslave you. And when this happens, we know what the effect is on us. It leads us to isolation and to shame and to depression and to deadness. Well, why do we get caught in a roller coaster so easily, that, roller, that shame cycle roller coaster, except that the devil both allures us into sin and then accuses us for having sinned. And so he gets it both ways, and it's a beating, an emotional beating. And on the flip side, why are we drawn to just a decent moral life? Um, contained moral life, like I can handle it from here. Except that the devil is, is fine for you to live right. He's fine for you to live morally. His whole point is he doesn't want you to need the gospel. And so C.S. Lewis said it this way, you know, tortured fear or stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Like our passage, he can engage in direct terrorism and raise up magicians and demon-possessed people, or on the flip side, it's just as easy. He can raise up materialists and skeptics. It doesn't matter to him, and in fact, the second is more effective, probably. Well, as we thought about this morning in Sunday school, what about that gap and how comfortable we are with the gap between our professed theology and our practical theology? It's, it's, a, it's a place that the devil can work where we use our knowledge in a way it's not intended and don't even intend to live it out in our lives and it becomes a gap for the devil to work. A host of schemes the devil has were to look at this passage in that light. Well, what about Jesus' disciples? 
decisive conquest. The decisive conquest. So there's so many things really encouraging about this when we find ourselves right in that situation. First, it's just that this is all Jesus' plan. It's a teaching curriculum here. Jesus leaves the safety of Galilee, stills a violent storm, crosses the Sea of Galilee to the other side to keep an appointment to subdue the devil and save this worst case scenario, demon-possessed man. When you feel overwhelmed with tribulation and temptation, um, or for someone you love and that thought comes in our minds that maybe we're too far gone, this is too big. Just see here that Jesus picked out the worst case scenario and went after him and it was his plan. And let that inform your prayer life and let that give you encouragement in those moments where you think you're sunk too deep. It's his plan, like this didn't catch him off guard. And second, just see his sovereignty similarly. When, when the demons in the man see Jesus and hear his command for them to come out, their spokesman cries out and falls down before Jesus, loudly confesses, what have you to do with me? And the sense of that is, this can't be good for me that you're here. And then he goes on to confess, Jesus, son of the most high God, this, this, this demon knows him, like, He knows his identity and he is terrified. He falls down, not in reverent worship, but in abject terror. Don't torment me. And really it's humorous here. There's some humor that peppered into this in that in the calming of the storm, the disciples look at Jesus who just showed mastery over wind and waves and they just look at him and go, who then is this? And they leave it unanswered. And then Jesus crosses to the other side of the lake and a bunch of demons gives the answer to the disciples' question. You're the son of the most high God. I don't want to say that, but I have to say that. Jesus shows his sovereignty and Jesus asks the demon's name, meaning I'm sovereign over you and you're no match for me. Well, third, just notice his mercy here, just unbelievable mercy. In verse 29, we find that they fall down before Jesus because Jesus commanded them to come out. And then Luke gives another description about how violently the demons treat this man. And what Luke wants us to see there is that Jesus looked at this man who so miserably, ruthlessly treated And that's what prompts his heart to do battle on his behalf. And we see Jesus' heart of mercy and compassion before turmoil and agony just unveiled. Say, how dare you treat this one this way? And he casts out those demons. Another reason he asks for the demon's name because he's speaking to the man is he seeking to awaken in the man a sense of self-consciousness that he is not the same as the demons. Like he's distinct from the malevolent force which is inhabiting him. And that's something he does with us too in the gospel because sin wants to make you think you are the sin and get you to view yourself in light of 
your failings. And Jesus looks at you and says, you are not your sin. You are other than your sin. So the demons beg Jesus, do not cast me into the abyss. And so in the Old Testament, the abyss is associated with the sea. And that's kind of humorous too, because in a minute they're gonna find the sea. However, it's especially this place of confinement and imprisonment and chains. And it's a place where demons can be kept for judgment day and restricted in their roaming through the earth till they're thrown in the lake of fire when Jesus returns on that final day. And they're begging him, don't do that to us. Don't do that to us. And it's really strange that Jesus relents and he permits them to keep going. He delays judgment, even the start of judgment. Even though he decisively defeats them here, he delays judgment for the future. So they beg him to send them into a herd of pigs and Mark tells us that's 2,000 pigs. There's a lot of demons involved and Jesus gives permission. So we see the demons exert their destructive influence on these pigs, they hurtle down the mountain and are drowned in the lake. And we ask, why does Jesus permit this? And, And we don't have enough time to really explore this like would be really interesting to do this morning, but I have a few things I wanna say that just meant a lot to me this week. First, it, it, it shows what the demons want to do with you. Second, it shows that the soul of one man is worth than more than 2,000 pigs. Like all the wealth of these people, that one man to Jesus is worth far more. It, It also suggests that Jesus is rebuking the people that they have valued their pigs more than the soul of this one man, which is, can be a rebuke for us. But but even more, the fourth, what I've most liked meditating on this week is, it shows us that salvation from the devil is costly. It's gonna cost. And this herd of pigs is essentially sacrificed to save this man. And Luke gives us really here a picture of the gospel, a foretaste of what's got to happen, that the son of man, the son of the most high, is gonna have to be sacrificed to redeem you from the devil. He becomes the demon-possessed man for us, like Jesus becomes this man, spiritually speaking. He's gonna be rejected by the people. He's gonna be driven from his home, stripped naked, beaten, and will have to cry out. He'll be subject to the devil. He'll be loaded with the guilt and shame of our sin. And because of that, he's gonna be abandoned by his own father into the abyss, into hell itself. He he becomes this tormented man because that's the fruit of sin and curse. And you take, you see curse played out in, in Jesus absorbing it all to, to, to take it off of you. And then he's gonna be placed in a tomb, but the story doesn't end there because he pays the price of sin, the sentence of sin, the son of God, with that absolute power he demonstrates here, he resurrects and that's gospel, that's, Good news that you won't be this man because Jesus overcame it for you. And so there's different commitments. This, this entails a commitment, it's a dividing place. And so the different commitments here, the herdsmen 
who witness what Jesus did, they go off and report it to the city. They're maybe inadvertent evangelists. And they're trying to show that it's not our fault that all the pigs drowned, but they're doing more. And so this group from the city come out to see for themselves, and we have two different commitments here. Like Jesus is a dividing point. And so on the one hand, you have the former demon-possessed man, and he's completely restored. He's clothed, he's not naked. He's seated, he's not roaming around. He's in his right mind, he's not crying out. He's with people, he's not alone. He's under Jesus' lordship, not the devil's lordship, a, a complete restoration the eyewitnesses report that he's healed, and yet Luke, you know, Mark and Matthew use a heal word. Luke uses save. And what Luke wants us to appreciate, he's not just released from the lordship of demons. This man is released from hell, death, and sin. Like he's forgiven of his sins. He's placed his trust in Jesus. He's submitted to a new Lord. And you see that, and that's a picture of you even if it were less dramatic like no less you had an army of demons seeking to destroy you and you were under their lordship and Jesus pulled you out and put you under his lordship and you sat in his presence it's the posture of a disciple. You know, later Mary is gonna be seated and Martha's gonna be frantic. It's that posture of a disciple at Jesus' feet, calm, at peace. On the other hand, the crowds are filled with great fear. And yet it's a fear different from the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. Their fear, they were overwhelmed. And yet it led to greater commitment and reverence and awe. You're creator. But the crowd's fear leads them to, to reject Jesus. In the face of this, they look at Jesus and say, please leave us and, and depart from our land. And so the greatest opportunity of their lives is before them. They could bring the whole city out and get healed, uh, but they beg him to leave. And so, like, why did they do that? And it seems they prefer a life that's predictable, that's usual, that doesn't have disruptions like this, that doesn't have supernatural power, no life-transforming events. They want no threat to ordinary living, to their wealth and their comfort. They don't want life with a powerful person like Jesus. And really, is that not a whole different strategy of the evil one? Like, who ends up being influenced by the evil one? And so Jesus gets ready to leave and the former demon-possessed man begs to go with him. He's just got this full-on devotion. It's like that famous story that Steve Brown says when he goes, tells a story about Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln went to the slave market and he noticed this young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest bidder. And so he engages and he starts bidding on her too. And he wins the bidding war for this person. And 
when he got her, he could see the anger in this young woman's eyes and could imagine what she was thinking. This another white man who's just bought me is gonna use me and discard me. And so Lincoln walked off with his property and he turned to the woman and said, you're free. And she responds, yeah, what do you mean? And he looks at her and says, you're, you're free. And she goes, does it mean I can say what I want? And Lincoln smiled and says, you can say whatever you want. He says, incredulously, can I be whatever I want? And Lincoln looks at her and says, you can be whoever you want. And then she says, does it mean I can go wherever I want? And Lincoln says, yes, it means you're free and you can go wherever you want. And then the woman looks at him with tears in her eyes and says, I think I want to go with you. And we have this man that's known another master who's been very cruel and he's met a gracious master. He just wants to go with him. <laughs> Don't leave me here, take me with you. And yet Jesus looks at him in this surprising turn of events and he refuses. Like the demons beg him and he agrees. The townspeople beg him and he agrees. This man begs him and he refuses. And so why? We well, don't actually say no, he redirects him. He says, go home. Declare how much God has done for you. Tell your testimony of grace. And we learn a couple of things that's just beautiful here. On the one hand, the value of your ordinary calling today. Like, your home is first, your place is first. Those that know you are first. If, if you've seen yourself be rescued from a legion of demons by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you felt that liberating power, go home, tell them what he's done for you. Imagine, this was more difficult really. Like imagine the conversations he had to have with people probably that he hurt. Let me tell you what Christ has done for me. And, and one other thing is that, just see Jesus' forbearing grace here. Like the, the crowd gets together and they tell him to leave. And this is the only time Jesus is ever in Gentile territory in Luke's gospel. Like the other gospels he's in at various times. This is the only time, he's there once. And the crowd tells him to leave, but before he leaves, he commissions a gospel missionary and sends him to them, which in effect is, I'm not leaving. He represents me, and I love you so much that even though you stiff arm me when I brought salvation to you, I'm sending my man, who's my first gospel missionary in the Gentile territory, and he's gonna represent me before you. But you know what? In about a year or two, you don't know it yet, but you are gonna be flooded with gospel missionaries once I disarm the power of the evil one triumphing over him at my cross and resurrecting to the right hand of the Father. Get ready, this is your prelude to full on gospel preaching. And just think about this man. His life was a ruin and a wreck, worth nothing to anybody. And Jesus makes him his first 
missionary to the Gentiles. Is that not a revolution in a person's life? But you look at that, it's the same thing he does for you. An about face, and he uses all of that wreck, all of those wounds, to make you more effective in proclaiming and living the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it always be so, because Lord Jesus Christ reigns, he has conquered hell, death, and sin on your behalf. Amen. Let's stand.